Our passage is from Psalm 139, which is page 628 in the Red Church Bibles. Psalm 139, chapter 1. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise rise on the wings of the dawn, and if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the, the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being, You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in this secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are the thoughts are your thoughts, God? How vast is the sum of them? Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with Ill, evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting, in the way everlasting. Daniel, thank you very much for reading for us. Um, If you were here last week, uh, then you'll know that we began a little series of, um, of three uh, talks um, based around uh, the image of God, that verse from Genesis uh, chapter 1 where we're, we're told that God made mankind in his image, uh, man and woman, uh, he made us. Um, and two, two things that I wanted to just to recapture uh, as we start. Um, First is that what I was trying to do last week uh, in thinking about what is meant by that idea of being made in the image of God um, was uh, to to argue that we should think of image-bearing not as being connected with a quality or an attribute, uh, but as something that is intrinsic to our being. So we're not image-bearers because we're rational creatures and we can reason well. Uh, or because we're relational, or because we're creative, or because we, um, we can show uh, an ability to rule over other, um, other things, other people, or the, or the world itself. 
None of those things are the essence of what it is to have the image of God. Uh, If they were, then we could argue that some people have the image and some people don't. Or some people have more of the image and some people have less of it. Um, And where that has happened, all sorts of abuses have taken place. Because if some people have got more of the image and some people have got less of the image, uh, then some people can feel themselves superior. And on that basis, racism and sexism, uh, slavery, even the atrocities of the Nazi regime have all been justified by a distortion of this teaching concerning uh, the image of God. So it it becomes a really big thing to get it right. Uh, To be clear that we are, uh, according to the Bible, we're made in the image of God. That's something that's intrinsic to us um, as human beings. Uh, We also saw that it was connected to his intention for us. Because if men and women are made in the image of God, then it is Jesus who is the image of God. We're just made according to the image. Um, But Jesus is the image. Uh, And then we discover that God's great plan of salvation is to conform us to the image of Christ. So being created in the image of God has also got that intentional aspect to us uh, of where God is taking humanity. Okay, so that's a very brief recap of where we were last week. The second thing I wanted to cap- recapture from last week is my rosebush. Do you remember my rosebush that I started trying to dig up in an afternoon um, and discovered that rosebushes have far more extensive roots than you could ever imagine? Um, and what I thought I could do in an afternoon turned out to be a, more like a week's work. Um, well, if, if trying to tackle the, um, the question of the image of God um, in whatever we had last week, sort of half an hour or so, um, proved to be far more extensive and, and far more comprehensive and, and, and sort of back-breaking work for you listening to me um, than I thought. Um, this week, um, I'm conscious that the rosebush... Um, not necessarily, well, I mean, it does have a pretty extensive root system, but the rosebush this week is sensitive, isn't it? Um, this is tender to touch. We're in delicate territory this week because I'm going to relate the image of God to the beginning of life um, and particularly going to take us into the territory of thinking about abortion. Um, now, now, that's sensitive territory uh, for all sorts of reasons. Um, Uh, It's sensitive first because it raises such strong feelings um, across the the spectrum of the debate. Um, People who take a a pro-choice position, um, and I realize that that these sort of polls are not terribly helpful, but it's what gets used in the literature talking about the polls of pro-choice, pro-life. So I'll use that language, acknowledging, though, that there's a spectrum of views. But those who take a uh, a pro-choice position... Um, For them, that is a really passionately held issue. Um, Understand that uh, a uh, pro-choice position would be be held by somebody who believes that everyone has the basic human right to decide when and whether they have children. It's tied up with women's rights. It's tied up with with a a strong conviction about human rights and and the absolute rightness uh, of free access to abortion. People feel passionately about that. 
no less passionate are those uh, on the other end of the spectrum who take a pro-life position. Uh, And the battleground between those two polar views um, has certainly been heated, uh, sometimes been violent, particularly in the US. So I know that's sensitive uh, to tread into that kind of territory. But it's not just sensitive because there are strong views on this issue. Um, It's sensitive because abortion will be a personal reality uh, for many. Um, We'll look at um, a few more statistics um, in a little while. Um, But at the outset, um, let me just say this, that by by the time that um, a woman reaches 45... Um, one in three uh, in the UK will have had an abortion. Um, Now, that means that it's pretty unlikely that in a gathering of this size uh, there won't be a number of people who are touched personally by this issue um, within their family and within their friendship groups uh, in their own personal experience. Um, So I I recognize this is tender territory and I want to do my best to tread Uh, carefully. Uh, It means that abortion is not an academic subject for a little dispassionate discussion tonight. And it's bound to have touched us in personal ways. But I think one of the the things that happens because of that um, is that abortion, discussion of abortion gets ignored. uh, That we have been uh, largely silent on the subject. Uh, perhaps for a whole range of reasons, but certainly that would include being silent um, because of um, because of a fearful fear, fear concerning those sensitivities. I'm ashamed to admit that that I think that this is the first time in the 15 years that I've been um, part of the the, the church here. Uh, it's the first time uh, that we have, um, in any serious way, tackled the t- subject of abortion. I'm sure we've touched on it from time to time, but we've never given substantial time to it. And I feel ashamed about that, really. Uh, As I have come to this topic tonight, uh, I feel as though I have failed the church here um, in not addressing it before. Um, Not least, I feel as though that's a failure, because I think it makes it harder uh, for those who are facing issues in this territory Um, If we're silent in this area, silent concerning um, issues around an unplanned pregnancy, um, then I think it makes it harder for people to get good advice, uh, harder for us to have conversations, uh, harder for those who've been affected uh, by abortion uh, to be able to talk about it uh, within the church. Um, We ought to be ready to do that. So I'm glad we've got the chance to, to think about it and talk about it Uh, together this evening. Um, Let me me begin in this way. Let me begin uh, with a scenario. Um, Imagine a a teaching hospital, uh, like um, our teaching hospital uh, up the road, Addenbrooke's. Um, And imagine two operating theatres side by side in that hospital. Uh, In one... Uh, a highly trained and specialist medical team are using all of the skill 
and the expertise at their disposal to try and save the life of a premature baby. Surgeons perform an emergency caesarean section. Neonatologists stand by ready to resuscitate the baby and take it to the neonatal intensive care unit. In the theatre alongside, another team of highly trained medics are at work. Their patient is also a pregnant woman and her pregnancy has arrived at exactly the same gestational stage uh, as the woman next door. Only this medical team aren't working to give this woman a healthy baby. They're working to bring this woman's pregnancy to an end. Part of the paradox is that the language used in the two rooms will be different. In one, people will be speaking of wanting to save this woman's baby. In the other, they'll be working to remove the products of conception. Yet both are the same aged child. If you think that's strange enough, imagine what would happen if, as sometimes does take place, uh, the termination of pregnancy uh, is unsuccessful and the baby is born live. Well, then the neonatologists uh, might even be called from, as it were, one theatre to another, urgently summoned so that the baby that previously the medics were working to bring that baby's life to an end, they'd now be striving to keep it alive. These are the paradoxes that exist in our medical system. Now, of course, in reality, those things wouldn't be happening side by side. Uh, but I, I, I phrase it like that in order just to, to show the paradoxes that exist with where our culture has arrived, uh, the decisions that we're making. Late-stage abortions, such as the one I've just described, uh, are the exception. The vast majority of abortions in the UK uh, are performed uh, prior to 13 weeks. Um, but the paradox in the scenario I've just set out helps raise the question of how did we get here? How did we arrive in the situation we find ourselves where such things, at least in theory, would be possible? Um, those are the kind of questions that I want to try and answer, and I'm going to do it under, under four headings. I'm going to think about a little bit of history, a little bit of theory, a little bit of Bible, and then a little bit on some implications. Um, I'll try not to let us go on too long. First, some history. Um, I think it's important for us to see that the, the, the sanctity um, of the unborn child, um, uh, the care of newborn babies even, has not been something that has been universally accepted, not now um, and not in the past either. You, you wind back to, to the, uh, the Roman era, um, the, the century before Jesus was born, uh, around the time of his birth, um, and you find that it was, it was commonplace at that time of history uh, for newborn babies to be exposed uh, that is to be left out in the open in order that they would pe perish 
from neglect. That's how Plato, the philosopher, can write this. The offspring of the inferior and any of those of the other sort who are born defective, they will probably dispose of in secret so that no one will know what has become of them. Aristotle writes, As to exposing or rearing the children born, let there be a law that no deformed child shall be reared. So there was a culture in which both abortion um, and also infanticide uh, was practiced commonly, widely. And historians tell us that it was the, the rise of the Christian church that actually brought about change in that regard. Christians committed themselves to care uh, for the poor and for the weak, the needy, the outcast. So Christian families took in babies that had been exposed. Uh, Babies started being left uh, at the doorways of churches uh, because people had come to realize uh, that Christians uh, were taking in unwanted babies in that way. Christians set up orphanages uh, to look after children. Uh, By the time of AD 374, um, their influence had brought about a transformation um, in uh, the attitude of the society uh, that was even being reflected uh, in, the, in the Roman legal system, uh, which outlawed infanticide and infant exposure. Now, although um, abortions have continued um, over the centuries since then, Uh, Generally in the West, there has remained a a resistance uh, uh, both to abortion uh, and certainly to infanticide. But of course, in recent decades, that's changed. Uh, It is a relatively recent change in our legal system. Um, In the UK, it was the Abortion Act of 1967. Um, In America, uh, the famous Roe versus Wade ruling Uh, in 1973 uh, that both uh, set uh, this country and the United States on a route uh, towards much more uh, and legal uh, termination of pregnancy. So where has that left us now? Well, statistically. In the UK, um, uh, in 2018, the last year for which there are are full figures, uh, more than 200,000 abortions uh, took place. Uh, if that number just a bit too hard to get your head around, um, it, it means a, around 600 abortions uh, every day. Uh, most of those are, as I said, early abortions. 90% happen before 13 weeks. Uh, uh, and it means that one in five viable pregnancies uh, in the UK at the moment end uh, in a termination of pregnancy. About 98% Uh, of all of those abortions um, are carried out under what's called Ground C of the Abortion Act, uh, which states that the continuance of the pregnancy would involve risk to the life of the pregnant woman greater than if the pregnancy were terminated. 
Now, it's widely recognized that um, although it's very low, uh, the risk to a woman's health um, or the risk to a woman's life in childbirth um, is greater than the risk uh, to a woman's life in a termination of pregnancy. Um, and so in, in many ways, this clause um, could logically be said to justify um, any early abortion. Um, and in reality, um, many would see that, that we have arrived in a place in the UK uh, where abortion is largely available on demand. What does that mean in our country and in the world, uh, in neighbouring countries? Uh, it means that we're screening out for disability um, in a very major way. Uh, both Iceland and Denmark uh, are noting that the population of people with Down syndrome uh, is getting close to disappearing completely um, because uh, those uh, all of the, the pregnancies... Uh, of women carrying Down syndrome are now going through termination. Uh, or in India and China, um, selective termination has become a big issue. Uh, it's calculated that there are some 23 million missing women as a result of the termination of female babies uh, in just those two countries alone. That's a little of where we are. How did we get here? Um, some theory. Um, it's not unusual to, to hear reference to um, an early abortion being uh, the abortion of a, of a cluster of cells, a, a blob of jelly, an unformed fetus. Um, at the point of conception, uh, a unique individual comes into being. 23 chromosomes from mother, 23 from father combined to form a completely unique set uh, of genetic coding. And at that point everything is in place uh, to allow the zygote to, to develop uh, into a fully formed human being. Of course the zygote needs to implant in the uterus uh, and many don't do that. But the point is that a unique individual exists at that point. Uh, in terms of the genetics. I've been looking at lots of videos uh, and quotes uh, and various things this week, uh, many of it, much of it, much, uh, much of it very distressing. Um, some of it, though, um, very glorious. Um, and uh, just for a little pause from me speaking, I'd love to watch a, um, a video. Um, it's a YouTube clip um, of, a, of a TED Talk um, given by a NASA scientist, no less, um, whose work was in the business of developing um, photographic technique to enable um, presentation of, of sort of photography in outer space. Didn't really understand that bit, but um, something like that. Anyway, uh, the important thing for our, for, our, for our interest is that he'd applied the same techniques. Here it is, look, moving across. Um, he'd applied the same techniques... Um, to photography in utero and has produced the most stunning images um, of uh, the development um, of, a, of a child in utero. Um, and what I'd love us to watch is just uh, three minutes or so uh, of um, some of his film work.
glorious pictures, aren't they? Aren't they fantastic to watch? Um, just lovely. Um, extraordinary how they have captured that. Um, and and you, you, you watch that and see the, the glorious development uh, of a human being. Um, and uh, you can't help asking, how have we arrived um, at the place as a society where we are bringing to an end um, uh, the development uh, of that process in utero so much of the time? How have we persuaded ourselves um, that uh, an embryo uh, with fingers and a heart um, is something that whose life we can bring to an end? Well, the answer is um, that it's happened partly because of a, a shift in the very way that we understand what a person is. Um, and I just want to spend a moment just to, to think with you a little bit about something that's a bit technical and I can't do in very much detail, but about personhood theory. Um, remember a man called Descartes, I think, therefore I am? Vaguely heard that phrase once, don't quite know what it means. Um, but may, maybe you, you get enough of the idea um, that um, from that comes a way of conceiving ourselves um, that says, um, I, there is a critical division, if you like, between the real me who thinks um, and the, the sort of the less sort of real bit of me, which is just my body. A kind of a separation out of those two bits. You know, there's the real person, the person I really am. And then, of course, I've got a body. Um, and, and we sort of driven those two things apart a little bit. Um, if you like, you could say, there's the real me up here in my thoughts, um, and there's the not-so-real me, which is just the physical bit down there in my body. And I use the up and down language deliberately uh, because uh, one way of thinking about it is this, is this like a sort of upper story and lower story thinking. Um, the upper story, the mind gets granted some sort of priority. Whereas the lower story, the body, um, is of less significance and importance in conceiving who I am. If you want, you want to read more on this, um, then a woman called Nancy Piercy um, has written a, a book called Love Thy Body, um, which uh, explores this idea in great detail. Um, let, me, let me quote from her briefly. The mind has come to be regarded as the authentic self. It's the part of us that thinks and can say, therefore I am. The body has been reduced to the subpersonal, functioning solely on the level of biology and chemistry. On that level, virtually everyone today agrees that the baby in the womb is human, biologically, physiologically, genetically human, in the two-story metaphor, however, to talk about the fetus as biologically human is in the lower story, the realm of science. There, the body has been reduced to a mindless machine to be used and exploited like the rest of matter. And you only become a person uh, when something happens in the upper story. But then, of course, you can see that the big question becomes, what is that thing? 
What is the point at which this sort of just, this matter, which is just biology and chemistry, lower story, at what point did you then qualify to be a person because something's happening in the upper story? Well, here the bioethicists can't agree. Uh, Some think it would be the point where we show neocortical brain activity. Others, the point at which we could feel pain. Still others reckon we only become persons when we can make choices or live independently or have a conception and a care about our own existence. It's along those lines um, that academics like Peter Singer were able to suggest that simply being born doesn't infer the right to life because you haven't necessarily yet become a person. You're just, you're just a body, lower story. And whatever's needed for you to become a person, the, the, the proper stuff in the upper story hasn't happened yet. Um, and so at stages in Peter Singer's writing, uh, he would say uh, that parents should have the right to decide up to 28 days whether or not their baby lives or dies. And it's not just one rogue American who writes and thinks in this way. Um, uh, This is an article from uh, the Journal of Medical Ethics, um, some Australian bioethicists. Um, Let me read you um, a paragraph from their conclusion. If criteria such as the costs, social, psychological, economic, for the potential parents are good enough reasons for having an abortion, even when the fetus is healthy, if the moral status of the newborn is the same as that of the fetus, and if neither has any moral value by virtue of being a potential person, then the same reasons which justify abortion should also justify the killing of the potential person when it is at the stage of a newborn. In other words, logically, there's no grounds, as far as these ethicists can see, for granting a protective status to the newborn if we can't find a reason to justify protection for the unborn. It's not hard, is it, to to see why members of the disabled community uh, are feeling some of or are some of the people who are most troubled by these developments uh, and most vocal in their resistance to it. Okay, so some history, um, some theory, not very much theory, uh, much more could be said. Um, some Bible. Do understand that we move to the Bible for a, for a specific and very important reason. To be a Christian is to conclude that my views, my understanding of the world and of myself, it will not just be built on my logic and reason. So that I, I just, whatever I think makes sense, I will decide that is truth for me and I will follow it. To be a Christian says that that's not the way that I'm going to live my life. To be a Christian is to say there is some external authority. There is a revealed source of truth um, in the Bible, in the Word of God, 
uh, to which I will submit for my understanding of myself, of my world, of my ethics. Uh, two passages. First, Psalm 139. Um, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit, when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. First thing the psalmist does is, is just acknowledge that there is someone there is another, greater, that transcends. You get that sense of, of somebody beyond me to whom I have to um, relate, uh, to whose greater wisdom I must defer. And this God is a transcendent God, but it's also a personal God, a, a God of intimacy, uh, a God who draws near. And then you get a slightly ambiguous part of the psalm, don't you? Do you get this next bit? Verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your, right, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say darkness, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. And it's a little bit ambiguous because you're not sure whether the psalmist is, is sort of celebrating the fact that he can't get away from God or slightly intimidated by it. Um, maybe you have a similar experience in your own life. Is it comforting to know that God sees everything and is everywhere? Or is that a slightly disturbing truth? when you remember how you live your life. I mean, it's the same. There is that sort of ambiguity, isn't there, um, in this knowledge that there is a God who so completely surpasses me and who, from whom I can never escape, who, who follows me everywhere, who is present everywhere. But as well as it being impossible to, 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 to sort of escape from God, as it were, um, in terms of space... There's also the sense that you can't get away from God in terms of time either. That's the next part of the psalm. Go right back to the beginning, the beginning of my existence. He's there. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. You get this, this picture of, of the psalmist knowing that, that even back in this slightly mysterious, remember they hadn't done a lot of um, NASA scientist videoing in those days, even in this slightly mysterious creation in the womb, however it happens, God was present. God knew me, even at that stage of my life. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And now we're going even further back. Now we're saying even before I began, you knew about me. So great is your knowledge. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. 
Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. God knows us. uh, And the psalmist understand that God knew him, uh, even as an embryo growing in a womb. You get the same idea set out in in Luke chapter 1. We we won't look at it. Um, Some of you will remember the story. Um, uh, um, Mary, uh, who it seems uh, is newly pregnant uh, with the baby Jesus, visits her cousin Elizabeth, uh, who is in her sixth month carrying the child who will come to be known as John the Baptist. Um, And if you remember the, the, the narrative, on Mary's arrival, we're told that the baby in Elizabeth's womb, leapt for joy. Uh, John Wyatt has written a book about um, the ethics of life and death. Um, He writes this. At first glance, there are only two people in that room in Zechariah's home. But Luke implies that, in fact, there are four. Elizabeth and the unborn John, Mary and the unborn Jesus. And perhaps what captivated Luke was the recognition that John leapt for joy at Jesus' presence. Only a few weeks after his conception, in the same way that the lepers and paralyzed men and blind beggars will leap for joy as Jesus passes by in the future. Just dipped into two passages. But, but it's consistent with the, the way that the Bible um, seems to, to think very clearly that there is a unique, identifiable, known-by-God life in utero. Which would lead us down the path of saying that the unborn child deserves protection the same way that a newborn child does. As we finish then, one or two implications. Uh, I said that I've watched a lot of videos uh, over uh, recent days, um, both from pro-life, pro-choice um, organizations. And I've been struck by uh, even um, some of uh, those um, accounts, narratives posted by, um, uh, by women who've had abortions um, and are now posted on pro-choice websites. Um, many describe uh, the ongoing sense of of pain uh, and sadness uh, looking back on the decision that they took um, and the memory uh, of the child. Um, And it's striking how women who have had abortions do speak in terms of the child uh, whose life they brought to an end so often. Um, And and as I read that, it it strikes me that the first implication is this, that we must show grace. If we're a community committed to a gospel of grace, and we are, um, it must mean that as as well as being passionate in protection of uh, of the weak and vulnerable, those who are um, uh, needy, and I think that would include the unborn, we must also be a community committed to to a gospel of grace to those who have had an abortion as well. must be the implication. Church must be one of the best places to come to uh, 
for a woman who has had an abortion, knowing that she will be received with grace by people who themselves have been received with grace by God. It must be the right thing. And we must be absolutely clear um, about that. I think one of the things, one of the reasons I regret so much having been silent on this topic is because I think silence implies that somehow abortion is so terrible we can't talk about it. And the implication of it being so terrible we can't talk about it is that it is beyond the gospel, beyond forgiveness. And it absolutely isn't. Um, And that's why I'm, I'm glad to speak about it and glad to say that as a community we must seek to be the very best place um, uh, for women um, and their partners uh, who have um, been through uh, an abortion uh, and uh, need the grace of the gospel to speak into that. So first, show grace. Speck and speak truth. Um, um, it seems to me that, that, that we must be willing to speak out um, about the Bible's teaching on these things. Um, uh, Christians transformed Roman society by speaking out to one another um, and into the community in which they lived. Um, and a culture that was practicing infanticide became a culture that stopped practicing infanticide. Um, and we should want to speak out uh, the truth uh, that we discover in Scripture um, about the unborn. Uh, we need to do so carefully, graciously, thoughtfully, intelligently, uh, to find ways of expressing ourselves that, that are full of grace um, and full of kindness, uh, but we speak the truth. And then, then thirdly and finally, and we'll finish with this, we need to provide hope. You probably won't know, not many of you will know the history of the church. Um, down, down, just down there, um, if you walk around the outside of the wall, you'll find a plaque uh, which marks uh, the site of the Cambridge Women's Refuge um, from the 1800s. Um, and uh, if you look, in the, in the boundary wall of the churchyard um, is a wooden door. Um, it's blocked in now. There is also a door in that corner of the church. Um, and the significance of that being that that was a refuge for, um, uh, for women um, who, uh, in an unmarried state, had become pregnant. And uh, they would be accommodated there. Um, and the reason that there was a door there and then a door there is so that they could walk into the church building. They would sit in some pews uh, down in that corner of the church, um, having come in through that door and exiting through that door. Four or five years ago, a woman who was doing a PhD on the refuge uh, came and wanted to look at our archives and things. And um, so we, we got out what we had um, about that bit of history. And I was chatting to her, and I said, um, it's shameful, isn't it, uh, that these women were treated in that way? Um, had to come in through a special door, had to leave through a special door. Uh, it makes me feel quite ashamed. And she said, oh, you shouldn't feel ashamed. 
No, 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 you shouldn't feel ashamed. Church is one of the few places that were doing anything for those women in that period of history. Uh, we must be a community that provides hope. Um, and that means that we're willing to, to do something in this area. Um, I guess it might be that um, uh, we would want to get involved with some of the, Christ, the, the, the pregnancy crisis service that some Christians are trying to set up uh, here in Cambridge, um, offering to become a training to become a counsellor um, in that sort of a service. It would certainly mean providing uh, support for, for single mothers. I wonder how we would react as a community if... Uh, one of one of the the girls in Grafted got pregnant. How well would we do? Do you think, as a community, um, in uh, receiving uh, and absorbing and loving somebody who found themselves in that situation? Uh, it might mean committing ourselves uh, to um, to adoption and fostering, because if the number of people uh, the number of pregnancies that are ending in termination goes down. Uh, the number of children that are likely to be um, seeking adoptive parents is going to increase. Um, and maybe that's an area. Glad we've got that association with Home for Good uh, to try and uh, explore that. Now, those are things we ought to do. We ought to be practical um, in providing better alternatives. I've gone on too long. Um, it's a delicate subject and I've tried to tread carefully and that's probably made me slower than I would normally be. Um, there's lots we've not talked about. I realise that. There's lots of ethics uh, that we've not touched on. Um, so we've just... Um, I've tried to, to, to give you a broad sweep of where we find ourselves in the UK, um, a little bit of Bible uh, to explain uh, where uh, Scripture comes down on this issue and then some implications. Why don't I pray for us um, and then um, Matt will decide whether we're going to sing a final song or not. Um, let, me, um, let me pray. Oh, uh, sorry, I meant to say, uh, next week uh, we got the final in this little series of three um, and we, uh, we're going to set some time aside after the service to pick up questions um, and a bit of discussion. So we'll do that in a kind of organised way after the service next week. Um, in a less organised way, um, I'll be sat at the front, and Rachel will be sat at the front as well. Um, if you want to come and chat about anything, feel free. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father God, we, um, uh, we bring our, our hearts and our minds before you, um, I guess each of us, um, touched by this subject in different ways. Um, and we pray, Father, that uh, we would uh, seek to be those who, having encountered you, uh, a God of grace, uh, become uh, those who uh, display grace to others. Uh, and we pray that uh, that would be true in this area um, as in all others. Uh, and we pray, Father, that you would have uh, mercy on us, uh, mercy on the church, uh, mercy on our nation, as uh, we find ourselves uh, having arrived in a, in a place that perhaps um, even uh, 30 or 40 years ago uh, we would never have imagined. 
um, with regard to uh, this issue. Um, May we pray, Father, that uh, you would uh, help us uh, to maybe do some more reading, uh, do some more thinking, um, and uh, to be uh, part of um, all that you would do, um, that we might live pleasing uh, you. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.